Well, it's good to be back with you for our weekly half hour of rational thinking that we like to call the far middle. I'm Nick Deolius and have enjoyed the pleasure of being part of what is now 139 episodes of the far middle over the past, what, coming up on three years. Still hard to believe, but still so much fun. Now, we have to recognize MLK Day this week, uh, one of the far middle's North Stars, that is, with Martin Luther King. Now, King was one of the most noted practitioners of nonviolence and civil disobedience, with emphasis on the civil, right? But most people don't appreciate what that truly meant back in the 1960s during the height of the civil rights movement. So here's a story that I obtained from the great thought leader and civil rights leader alongside King, Mr. Robert Woodson, about what nonviolence truly meant back in the day. So Martin Luther King is giving a speech at a civil rights rally in Birmingham, Alabama. He's talking about Sammy Davis Jr. giving a benefit concert to help support the movement. For whatever reason, there's a member of the American Nazi Party sitting in the front row of the audience. I have no idea how or why. That's strange in and of itself. But anyway, the Nazi decides to jump up and start punching Martin Luther King. Hits him twice in the face. People are initially stunned. Now, what does King do? Does he punch back? No. Does he fling the guy off the stage? No. What he does is he throws himself between the attacker and let's just say more than one of King's followers who are about ready to administer their own brand of justice on the attacker. And then King decides to introduce the attacker to the crowd in a conciliatory manner. The attacker reportedly breaks down in tears. King doesn't press charges on the attacker afterward. That, constant listeners, is nonviolence in action. Easier said than done, but no one did it better than Martin Luther King Jr., with lasting impact. If you've been tuning in the past few months, and I hope you have, you know we've been selecting sports dedications at the start of each episode that go beyond, or maybe I should say that we focus beyond, what was done during the game or during the competition. Choosing people or events or things with historical significance, not just sports significance. And we have another fine choice that fits that profile today. A common trait that our sports dedication shares with Martin Luther King Jr. is his calm demeanor and ability to get along with others, even when tempers or emotions ran high. And granted, this guy we we're about to talk about was only dealing with on-the-field stuff, not the life-and-death impacts of civil rights. He was the best pitcher in an era of dominant pitchers, and very well, maybe the best pitcher of all time. His career numbers are ridiculous. 417 wins, a lifetime ERA of 2.17, and over 3,500 strikeouts. And get this, my favorite one out of the statistics, 110 career shutouts. I speak of the big train, that dominant right-hander from baseball's early period, Walter Johnson. But Johnson selected for this episode's dedication for another reason, his advocacy for players off the diamond and his life after baseball. This individual was more than a great pitcher. He was another one of those exemplary Americans. Let me tell you a story that sets up the environment for players in baseball back in the day, in the early 1900s. In 1911, a beloved Cleveland pitcher by the name of Addie Joss is in the middle of a secret battle with meningitis. He collapses before an exhibition game and he dies 11 days later at age 31. Tragedy. Here's what uh, Ken Burns, that great documentary 
uh, creator. I love Ken Burns' documentaries. Here's what he had to say about what followed after Joss's death. Afraid that their owner would refuse to give them the day off to attend the funeral, his grieving teammates simply skipped town. They staged a benefit game to aid his widow. All the great stars came. Walter Johnson, Smokey Joe Wood, Napoleon LaJoy, and Ty Cobb. The game was a great success. They managed to raise $12,931, but it only increased the players' anxieties. With no pensions of their own or job security or grievance procedure with the owners, they felt powerless. That's in Ken Burns' words. Powerless indeed is what the most physically powerful athletes in the land at the time felt. It's ironic, and that's when Walter Johnson became a leader off of the mound. The big train, Johnson, complained about the state of pro players in an article he wrote for Baseball Magazine titled Baseball Slavery, The Great American Principle of Dog Eat Dog. I found a quote from that article that is poignant and that I wanted to share with you. And this is Johnson's own words. The employer tries to starve out the laborer and the laborer tries to ruin the employer's business. They quarrel over a bone and rend each other like coyotes. And we are here freeborn Americans with a constitution in public schools. Our business philosophy is that of the wolf pack, end quote. How about that description? Darwinian to the point of brutal. A great look into what drove the labor movement in America and what ultimately led to Kurt Flood decades and two world wars later in baseball. Now, today we've got a single player, Otani, signing with a big market team for $700 million. Things change, and so does context for sure, in sports and in life, sometimes to opposite extremes. And by the way, I searched high and low for a complete copy of the text of that Walter Johnson article in Baseball Magazine. Again, Baseball Slavery, the Great American Principle of Dog Eat Dog, So I was unable to find it, but if one of you constant listeners is able to locate it or source it, um, please send the information to me if you could. I'd appreciate it. And Walter Johnson became even more interesting and more well-rounded after he retired from pitching. In February 1936, on George Washington's 204th birthday, the big train replicated a feat attributed to Washington by throwing a silver dollar across the Rappahannock River. Though it remained in dispute whether Washington ever did such a thing, Johnson did prove that it could be done because he indeed did accomplish that feat. Now, Johnson also got into politics. He was a lifelong Republican and a friend of President Calvin Coolidge, who you might recall is one of my favorite presidents and I believe one of the most underrated. And in 1940, Johnson ran for a congressional seat in Maryland's 6th District, but came up short against the incumbent Democrat. Now, let's just say that Johnson was not as good of a public speaker as he was a pitcher or even writer. Here's what one of his supporters said, quote, he was an utterly inexperienced speaker. I got some of my boys to write two master speeches for him, one for the farmers of his district and the other for the industrial areas. Alas, he got the two confused. He addressed the farmers on industrial problems and the businessmen on farm problems, end quote. Hey, I guess you know we've all been there to varying degrees, I suppose. But we proudly put the big train, Walter Johnson, up for dedication for Far Middle episode 139, not just because he was arguably the greatest pitcher in history, but also for, and just as importantly, 
what he articulated in that baseball magazine article for the 19 teens business environment and worker environment, again, titled Baseball Slavery, the Great American Principle of Dog Eat Dog. Another great athlete who evolved into a great American. Let's start our connection sequencing, shall we? It's funny how more than a few sports fans don't know the first thing about Walter Johnson's on-the-field exploits. And then very, very few business people or labor leaders are aware of his diagnosis of the business of baseball back then and what it led to with Otani contracts today. It's an age-old phenomenon that public opinion is fickle and the public opinion is forgetful, not just in sports or politics. And I'll give you an example to illustrate further. It goes back to early in World War II and how the American public viewed the fighting prowess of our ally, our old ally, Great Britain. Now, thinking about that topic today, most people with a decent understanding of World War II and history, they'd say that Americans thought highly of their British allies and what they did on the battlefield during World War II. And most would be incorrect in that assumption. Early in World War II, even just after the UK routed the Germans and Italians in North Africa, Americans had little respect for the British military. Now, perhaps much of that sentiment had to do with Britain getting routed all over the globe at the start of the war. In France, namely at Dunkirk, in East Asia, in the Atlantic, with convoys decimated by U-boats and with the loss of flagships such as the battleship Hood. In North Africa, that started off poorly for the Allies until Montgomery turned things around. Americans viewed the British as poor fighters and, frankly, as losers. A famous saying early in World War II was the British would fight to the last Frenchman. And the common thought was that America would always need to perpetually come to the aid of Britain to save it. World War I and now World War II. There was a survey done by the U.S. Office of War Information in July of 1942 So that's a full six months after Pearl Harbor and at the height of America's gearing up for global war. The question posed, I thought was a really interesting one. Which nation was trying the hardest to win the war for the Allies? And here were the tallied responses. 37% said, not shockingly, the United States. Yay for the home team. 30% said Russia. And I guess you can't blame them at the time for answering such when you consider what Mother Russia sacrificed in the Second World War. 14% said China. So that is the rape of Nanking and such horrors. 13% had no opinion. And a paltry 6% said the British. 6%. Now, the Office of War Information summarized the reasons why Americans rated the Brits so poorly. Britain not paying war debts from the First World War. Churchill giving speeches about how the fight was an epic one of fascism against freedom. Yeah, Churchill wouldn't even consider the thought of an independent India, but Indian soldiers were conscripted to die on behalf of the empire. A bit hypocritical, I would say. And trust me, I'm a Churchill fan, but still, that's a, that's a certain degree of hypocrisy. And many Americans felt Britain would save its armed forces to stay at home and protect it while asking its empire subjects from places like India to go fight and die to reclaim or to preserve the empire or for Americans to do so to save the British Empire. But today, that's not what most of us think when it comes to Britain and the Second World War. We think of the Battle of Britain, with the brave, overwhelmed spitfires and dogfight after dogfight, of Churchill's inspiring speeches, standing bravely alone against the fascist onslaught, um, General Montgomery and turning the tide in North Africa against Rommel, 
Heck, you read most military books, and the impression you get is Britain tried the hardest outside of the Soviets, and that they fought the longest, and they were the most effective despite having very limited resources compared to America and the Soviets. It's a very different impression in America about our ally than what it was at the start of World War II. Let's back up even further in time for our next connection. Go in reverse from World War II back to just prior to World War I. It's back when Walter Johnson was hurling strikes. The United States enjoyed the most productive economy, not just in the world at that moment, but also in the entire history of the world to that point. There's a historian, John Milton Cooper, who superbly summarized how America was situated around the turn of the century, circa 1900. So give a listen to what he wrote. American commerce, transportation, industry, and agriculture were wonders of the world. By almost any measure of economic performance, the United States excelled. Steel production in 1900 amounted to over 10 million tons, more than a third higher than Germany's, the closest competitor. Railroad trackage stretched to 167,000 miles, or one-third of the world's total. Per capita income was estimated at $569, far above the nearest rival, Britain. Literacy rates stood at nearly 90% of the populace. The country had over 2,200 newspapers and nearly 1,000 colleges and universities, with a combined student body of nearly 240,000. That's from the writings of John Milton Cooper. But it gets better because the federal government was minimal during this era. There was no income tax until 1913, when it was institutionalized by constitutional amendment. And most citizens of America, most Americans, they gave little, if any, thought to the federal government. Government left the individual alone so that he, and back then it was almost definitely a he, could go achieve and do. And by the way, that historian that I quoted from, John Milton Cooper, is an American historian and author who specializes in late 19th and early 20th century American political and diplomatic history with a particular specialty on presidential history. His 2009 biography of Woodrow Wilson was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and more than a few historians label him as the world's greatest authority on Woodrow Wilson. I'd love to pick his brain on Woodrow Wilson, who I consider to be one of the worst performing presidents in our nation's history. And if you want to know why, read Precipice for a full explanation. But suffice to say that this podcast here, I can credit Wilson um, with creating the deep state as in deeply entrenched and voracious government with all of its bureaucracy and regulations. Also, he was a naive globalist with his failed League of Nations experiment, which fails to this day, by the way, with its current version in the form of the UN. And those things alone, that might be plenty enough in my book to put you on the you-know-what list of presidents. But here's the coolest note about Mr. John Milton Cooper, the world's leading expert on all things Woodrow Wilson. Guess what high school he attended when growing up in Washington, D.C.? That's right, Woodrow Wilson Senior High. Freaky, or at a minimum, one hell of a coincidence. Brought to you by the far middle, of course. And speaking of those newspapers and how prevalent they were back around 1900, let's contrast that with a connection to the plight of journalism today, both economically and morally. The economic ruination and moral ruination of the profession of journalism, they go hand in hand. The moral bankrupting drove and caused the economic bankrupting in that profession and industry, which is counter to what experts tell us. 
they say what drove journalism to its sad current state was technology, social media, bloggers, fake news, yada, yada, yada. And for sure, those things are challenges, and they didn't help the overall position of journalism, but they are not the root cause of its demise today. The root cause was excellently summarized by James Bennett in The Economist recently. Look his article up if you get a chance. It's a great read. Bennett in The Economist. December 14th of last year, I believe, was the date of publication. And we talked about this issue in a far middle installment just prior to Christmas, a few weeks ago, if you recall, with that Arizona State Cronkite School paper. And now we have another fascinating item to discuss in this vein, this time from Mr. Bennett. He did a great job of differentiating between classic liberalism and illiberalism. And as we've discussed many times on Far Middles of Past, classic liberals believe in the supremacy of the individual and his or her rights. But all too often today, the elites, they play loose with the label liberal to apply what should be a good label to something bad, the left. And the left and illiberalism, they run amok with journalism these days. These are the ideologies most mainstream media leaders embrace. Reporters used to be all in with classic liberalism and all that comes with it, including true freedom of speech and all individual rights. But today, the illiberal reporting pool and their leftist leanings, they're doing the opposite. Group rights matter more than individual rights. You see that everywhere in media and with biased reporting these days, don't you? That's why entities like the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, once the tip of the spear for freedom of speech, are no longer such. Did you ever hear that famous saying for free speech, which was, I may strongly disagree with what you're saying, but I'll strongly defend your right to say it? That summed up the ACLU historically, but not today. Today, the ACLU will first filter the speech content to see if it finds it agreeable or not. And if it's not agreeable, it won't defend the speaker's right of that speech to express freely. Sort of blows up the entire foundational premise of the ACLU, doesn't it? Well, the same goes for media when it comes to reporters objectively reporting on free speech or individual rights. If the journalist likes the group the individual aligns with, or if the reporter agrees with the message content, then they report in a supportive manner. If the journalist doesn't agree or like, then they refuse to report, or worse yet, they'll attack or misreport as an activist advocate to sway opinion instead of an objective reporter to inform the public. That's the root cause of fake news being thrown about all the time these days. And that's how the idea of censoring misleading content, so to speak, or filtering away misinformation, again in quotes, came about. And the left and illiberal in media today, they don't trust you and they don't trust me. They'll feed us exactly what they think we need to hear and when we need to hear it. If something is a fact, but it's deemed dangerous, then we can't be allowed to learn about it, as if we're children unable to handle something adult because we'll think it a toy or abuse it, resulting in harm to ourselves. It's not objective in clinical reporting. It's prepackaged and intended to drive outcome views, what most of us would tag as propaganda. And all of this results in what Bennett pointed out in his, uh, his article is a herd mentality and peer pressure for reporters today. You want to be the cool kid. You want to be with the in crowd. You want to be a follower. And you want to operate within an echo chamber. But it's not reporting. It's not journalism. And it's not free speech. 
and it's certainly not being a classic liberal. So here we are talking within Connection so far, one about journalism and media, the other one about what the economy once represented with respect to American greatness. Both of those feed into a quick hit connection up next. I was cleaning up the desk recently, and I came across an article interview that I saved from a couple of years ago. And the interview was provided by Walter Kern, the respected author. And one of his areas of interest and expertise is exploring what he sees as one of the oldest political fissures known to mankind, the cultural divide between city and country, or or urban and rural, and on the related divide also between coastal elites and flyover middle class. Now, that divide, or pair of divides, if you want to add the second pairing, is often catalyzed by media and journalists, and it has transformed policy in our economy. It's created value appropriation and wealth transfer from one side to the other, from rural to urban, from country to city, or from flyover country to coastal elite enclaves. And Kern has crystallized a way to assess this issue. In the interview that he gave from late 2021, he put forth the concept that Wall Street in D.C., they extract all kinds of things, wealth and energy and food from the looked down upon regions in flyover country. Now, what are the things that Wall Street or D.C. or the coastal megacities give back in exchange? Their contempt, their disdain, and their arrogance. Now, how do they deliver those things back to middle America? Through media. Just watch the news, as Kern points out, or just go browse the web or click on a mainstream news article. What you'll come across sooner rather than later is a putting down of flyover country or of the rural or of the blue collar as backward thinking, as obsolete, as out of touch, as uneducated or uninformed. And he also points out another way that my corner of the world in places like Western Pennsylvania, they get stereotyped, that we're all huddling around in secret meetings in basements or bars and plotting our next move to overthrow government. He points out that's laughable and opposite what we're actually doing. We're working, we're taking care of our homes, we're raising our kids, and we're supporting our community and region. If that's wrong, I don't want to be right. The Trump win in 2016, that didn't help this phenomenon. It made it much worse, and it stays with us today, well into the Biden presidency. Heck, it is essentially the Biden platform for re-election when you think about it. And to be fair, it goes both ways. Certainly a minority of outlets, but very visible and vocal ones, they're more than happy to play the opposite role and vilify everything East or West Coast related. Media has become a wedge creator and wedge preserver in America today. Now, you know who would be troubled by that wedge that exists today in America? Our next and final connection, where we wish a very happy birthday today, January 17, to Benjamin Franklin, born in 1706, born in Boston, not Philly, where he ended up, and he lived into his 80s, which of course was rare for that time. He was the first American polymath, Now, what's that? A polymath is an individual whose knowledge spans a substantial number of subjects, and that person can draw on complex bodies of knowledge to solve specific problems. I mean, how many people do you know that could be described as all of the following? A writer, scientist, inventor, statesman, diplomat, printer, publisher, and a political philosopher. The guy was one of the founding fathers, one of the drafters and signers of the Declaration of Independence, and the first postmaster general. And he was a journalist. 
And he ties thus into one of our connections for this episode at a time when journalists, they practice their profession nobly. At age 23, he was already publishing newspapers. It's where he first made his money along with his Poor Richard's Almanac. And by the way, he didn't publish Poor Richard's under his own name. Franklin used a pseudoname. Do you know which name he chose? Richard Saunders. There's so much to admire about the man. We could spend weeks running through that list. But one of my favorites was his plan to cultivate his character by 13 virtues. Now get this, he developed these 13 virtues at age 20. What were you doing at age 20? Honestly, I was doing my best to violate many of Franklin's 13 virtues. But anyway, you can easily find the 13 virtues and their definitions online. Most of them are common sense. Like example would be temperance, eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. Again, that's common sense. Maybe easier said than done at times. And probably the virtue that I do the best on myself is order, which is defined as letting all your things have their places letting each part of your business have its time. I guess I'm a little anal retentive. The most challenging for me is probably tranquility. That's defined as being not disturbed at trifles or at accidents common or unavoidable. I tend to be bothered quite easily, as you can probably tell by now. And what are your best and what are your most challenging of the 13 virtues to follow? I found out Franklin did not try to work on them all at once. Instead, He worked on one and only one each week. He admitted he fell short of them many times, but he also believed the process of chasing them made him a better person and helped him achieve not only success, but also happiness. In his autobiography, Franklin devoted more pages to this plan than to any other single point. And he wrote, quote, I hope, therefore, that some of my descendants may follow the example and reap the benefit, end quote. I suppose as Americans, we are in more ways than one a descendant of Franklin's. So until next week, pick one of those 13 virtues and do your best to adhere to what it preaches and reap the benefit from it. See you in a week, virtuous listeners.